You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Don't. Hello, my radio friends. I'm so glad you've joined me today for another Give Me the Bible program. The Bible is a very worthwhile book, and we would do well to take notice of it. One of the first things we learned as little children was the meaning of the word don't. Don't touch the stove because you might get burnt. Don't do this, don't do that, don't eat with your mouth open, and so on, and so on. By our parents saying don't to us was probably for our own safety or our well-being. The trouble with don't is that it contains negative connotations and we're generally less keen on negative than positive statements. Even so, don't implies other actions, positive ones, in place of negative ones. Imagine I say to my wife, I don't hate you. How would she feel? What I don't hate you really means is I love you. But I don't hate you is a less desirable way of expressing my love. The Bible uses both types of expressions and unfortunately some people misunderstand the negatively framed statements. For example, in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 17 and Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 to 21, are listed God's will for mankind. These lists are known as the moral law or the Ten Commandments. There are some people who mistakenly think that the Ten Commandments were removed, that is, done away with, when Jesus was nailed to the cross at Calvary. The Bible text they use to take that position is Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, which says, Having cancelled, that's wiped out, the written code with its regulations that was against us and that was opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The King James Version of the Bible calls the written code the handwriting of ordinances. The handwriting of ordinances is not the moral law, the Ten Commandments. It is the ceremonial law about the sin offerings and sacrifices that were instituted in order to provide for forgiveness. You will know if you read the first five books of the Bible that the sin offering consisted usually of a male lamb with no defects, where the repentant sinner was required in the presence of a priest to cut the lamb's throat and there in front of him the lamb bled to death. So what in reality was nailed to the cross? 
Well, it was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. All those ceremonial laws and regulations lost their significance because Jesus was the reality that all the symbolism of the old ceremonial laws pointed to. Now, if the moral law was disposed of, then there would be no further means by which anyone could identify sin. And to carry that point one step further, if there were no sin, then there would be no need of a saviour. The moral law is included in Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, verse 17, where he says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Sacrificed still had to be to forgive sin, and Jesus fulfilled that. If Jesus intended to abolish the moral law, why did he himself keep the law perfectly? By keeping the law, he fulfilled the law. And Jesus also fulfilled the law by paying the universal price for the sins of human beings, including you and me, for breaking it. In that way, he fulfilled the law. Fulfilling the law doesn't mean abolishing it. To the contrary, Fulfilling the law means upholding it to its highest degree. So, if you're one of those who maintain the law was abolished at the cross, I feel sorry for you, because you're mistaken. Furthermore, you'll have to have a pretty strong argument ready to present. As the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter the Apostle James plus the Apostle John all hold that the Ten Commandments continue to exist. Paul says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And you can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. The Apostle John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And you'll find that in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 2. And the Apostle James says, For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And that's from James chapter 2 verse 10. The Apostle Peter says, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it to turn away from the holy command delivered to them. And that's from Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. Now, mind you, our salvation is not dependent on keeping the commandments. We are saved in only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ, to show our gratitude and respect for him for saving us 
we do what he says by obeying him. Eight of the Ten Commandments are expressed in negative, that is, don't, type terminology. And they're all like that except numbers four and five. And here they are. God says, number one, don't have any other gods before me. Put in the positive sense, it means put God first. Number two says, don't make or worship any idols, which really means worship only God. Number three, don't misuse my name, which means only use God's name reverently. Number six says, don't murder, which means respect others' right to life. Number seven says, don't commit adultery, which means respect the sacred relationship between husband and wife. Number eight says, don't steal, which means respect the property rights of others. Number nine says, don't lie, which means to respect and practice truth. Number ten says, don't covet, which means to be content with what you have. Now, number four is expressed in positive terms. It says, remember me, that's God, on the Sabbath day, and keep that day holy to honour me each seventh day of each week. And number five is also expressed in positive, and it says that we should honour our parents. You know, God's law is a beautiful law. It encompasses all activities of life and is a blueprint for a happy existence. It protects human rights, including our own. And even further than that, it's an outline of happy living and describes our responsibilities to both mankind and God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 verse 12, So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. Of course, holy means it is of divine origin and purpose. Just or righteous means it's without favour. It is right and fair. And good means that it's good, not to be thrown away or disregarded. To trash something because it is just and holy and good doesn't make the least of sense. When asked by a Jewish lawyer which was the greatest commandment, Jesus gave this reply as recorded in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here, Jesus is using positive terminology. He says, do, not don't. And again in John chapter 14 and verse 23, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. By using positive expressions does not mean we are to reject the negative expressions. In reality, they mean the same thing. It's like this. A parent says to a child, Don't go too close to the edge or you might fall. That's negative. But it's the same as saying, Keep back from the edge or you could fall. The same meaning, but said in different ways. In the book of Matthew, chapter 23, in verses 2 and 3, Jesus was addressing a crowd of people with his disciples present also. He said, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. A little later, Jesus announced, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. If you want to read that, that's in Matthew 23, verse 13. Now, this is a very important don't issue. What Jesus was saying is that teach, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had the responsibility, like Moses, to explain and teach the people about God, about his goodness, and about the fact that God was doing everything he could to save lost humanity. In the Old Testament scriptures, there were hundreds of prophecies and references to the Messiah who was to come. That Messiah was Jesus. But those teachers of the law and Pharisees failed to recognize him. They opposed him and eventually killed him. They were supposed to know the scriptures were so bound up in their traditions that they completely missed the most important personality and event in human history. They kept on with promoting their dreary traditions and scrupulous law-keeping so much that they failed to understand that Jesus, the Messiah, was the only channel through which one could get eternal life. Their tradition of espousing that people would be saved by meticulous law-keeping was wrong. Their teachings were just like slamming a door in someone's face. We've got more to say about this subject, and we'll come back to it straight after the break.
the tradition that was so much taught by the scribes and Pharisees didn't really have anything to do with saving the lost people. In fact, it was just the opposite. People never saw the reality of how to be saved because of all the traditions that were imposed. But you know, there was an even more sinister aspect of what Jesus had to say than that. He said to the people, Yes, obey what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees say. That's good. It's true you should give honour to God and man by keeping the law. There's nothing wrong with that. But you've missed the point. It is through me that you will be saved. Law-keeping is a product of being saved. But what you really have to watch out for is that you do not copy the lifestyle of these teachers. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. Now, why would he say such a thing? It was because these so-called teachers were living a lie. Their personal lives were corrupt. What they did was for show. And then Jesus directly addressed the teachers of the law, the scribes who copied out the sacred writings, and of course the Pharisees, and he spoke very bluntly to them, telling them that they were hypocrites, teaching righteousness, but covering up their own secret sins while pretending to be holy. I once read a book about Martin Luther, who, to supposedly increase his confidence and faith in the leaders of the Catholic Church, went to Rome, the centre of Roman Catholicism. Luther was astounded by the priests and cardinals, who he found were living corrupt lives, totally different than he expected. Luther expected that they would be reverent and holy, but what he found was that many of them were drunkards. Some were having illicit affairs with prostitutes, and pretty much all of them treating their holy office with contempt. Yet, when some of these priests went to officiate in the Mass, they walked in slowly with their heads bowed and looking oh so holy. Yet at times some of them were drunk and others were practising gross evils. How can this be? Luther wondered. And he came away from Rome bewildered and disillusioned by what he observed. If a minister or religious teacher lives a double life, teaching one thing and living in a manner contrary to his teachings, there are good reasons to beware of such a person. Now here's a question for you. How many hours per week should a Christian, or any religious person for that matter, live according to their beliefs? The answer is 168. That's the whole week. And so how many minutes per day should someone like that live according to his or her beliefs?
The answer is 1,440. That's all day. Our lifestyle should match our beliefs. As a Christian, I need to be a Christian 24-7. The Christian who promotes clean, righteous living needs to be exactly as he teaches, otherwise he's a fake. How much confidence would you have in a minister who teaches moral living and yet is having an illicit affair with one of his parishioners' wives? Very little. He needs to practice what he teaches. My radio friends, tradition is not holiness. The burning of candles, the reverence of statues, the carrying of so-called sacred objects, the repeating of prayers, counting beads and praying to dead saints is a total waste of time. It's worthless tradition. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to realise that we are sinners. We need to realise that our only hope is through Jesus and we need to practice what we know to be acceptable to God, that is, to do what he says. Again, beware of any minister who discourages you to read your Bible. If you don't read your Bible, how will you know what is truth or what isn't? Don't be fooled. There's a lot of pseudo-religion around masquerading as true religion. True religion will affect the heart, the motives, the desires and practices of the believer. It is to be, as Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 43 to 45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes nor grapes from briars. The good man brings good things stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. If your mind is filled with evil thoughts and corruption, you'll be evil and corrupt. If your mind is filled with pure, honest, respectful thoughts, you will be pure, honest and respectful. And you know, it's important to fill our minds with good things and not junk. In this day and age, we're surrounded with both good and bad. There are lots of good programs on television and there's stuff that is utter rubbish. You can go online and learn good things and you can easily find stuff that is mind, soul and character destroying. We need to make wise choices. But how, you might wonder? Take heart. The Apostle Paul had to face the same issues. In Romans 7.15 he said, I don't understand what I do. For what I do I do not want to do, but what I hate to do. I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer myself who do it, but sin living in me. And then Paul acknowledges that there is a war, was a war, going on within himself. How then does one become victorious with such a conflict going on? 
In Romans 8.37, Paul speaks about acceptance of Christ to the degree that he and we, if we choose, have Christ living in us. And then he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors. So how does this work? The Apostle Paul provides the answer. He says, I die daily. What he means is that each and every day he recognises his own tendency, his default mode, to sin. The remedy is to each and every day, every hour, every minute and second, to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means saying something like this, Lord, I know that I have this inbuilt tendency to naturally want to do what's wrong. Please come into me, guide my thoughts, guide my decisions, guide my actions. With Jesus and God's word guiding you, you'll be much better off. Don't give in to your own selfish nature. Don't be the victim of the devil who only wants to drag you down. Commit your life, your words, your thoughts to Jesus. Let him come in and fill you with his presence. Then you'll have nothing, yes, nothing, to be ashamed of. And unfortunately, that's it for today. I have much more to share with you on this subject, but we just can't deal with it. So, my friends, may God be with you. And until next time, this is Len, wishing you peace and joy as Jesus fills your life.